Would you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2? Now, there's much being written today about self-esteem and self-worth and self-image. And the message is that the way you see yourself governs the way you act. If you see yourself as a loser, you'll tend to act like a loser. If you see yourself as a victim, you'll tend to let people victimize you. If you see yourself as uncreative, you'll never come up with creative ideas. If you see yourself as successful, you will tend to repeat the successes of the past. You know, that's really no new discovery. Because thousands of years ago, the Bible said in Proverbs 23.7, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Your belief determines your behavior. And so the question is, who do you think you are? Remember when you used to go to the fair and they had that house with all the crazy mirrors in it? And they made you look tall or short or fat or skinny? Well, that's one of the problems we run into as we try to answer this question because there are a whole lot of mirrors out there giving us distorted images of ourselves. So this morning, I want us to come to the mirror of the Word of God and see who God says we are. And in verses 4-10, to we see three images of ourselves. We are the place God dwells, the priests God accepts, and the people God calls His own. First of all, we are the place God dwells in verses 4-8. to Notice verse 4. And coming to Him as to a living stone, rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. Now Peter began this chapter by telling us that we were newborn babies who need to grow up. Now he switches analogies to a construction site. And he says there is a house being built, and it's a spiritual house, and in that house we are living stones. If you have an advanced education, you are Dr. Livingstone. Tough crowd. Now this is an interesting image because... Stones are really the farthest thing from being alive. Plants are alive. Animals are alive. People are alive. Stones are dead. A while back we had the fad of uh, pet rocks. Well, I guess the strength of those is that they were easy to maintain. In fact, we associate stones with death. When somebody dies, we put up a gravestone. We put up a tombstone. We we say he was stone cold dead. Well, the Bible says we are living stones. In chapter 1, we learned that we have a living hope. We have a living word. And now we're told that we are living stones. But we are not just stones scattered all around. He tells us here, we are being built into a house. And I want you to notice some things about this house. Number one, it's God's house. Notice verse 5. He says, you're being built up into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Now, where do priests offer sacrifices? 
in a temple. So this house is a temple, and a temple is the house where God lives. Now that's pretty exciting. You are a living stone in the spiritual house in which God dwells. Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.16, we are the temple of the living God. Second thing I want you to notice about this house is it's a spiritual house, verse 5, as opposed to being a physical house. God is not building with bricks and mortar and plaster and steel. God is building with living stones. God is building with people. This auditorium is not the house of God. This is the building where the house of God meets. You see, you are the church. You are the house of God. You are the place He dwells. That's pretty exciting. Isaiah 66.1, the Lord says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? If God sits in the heavens and uses the earth to prop up His feet, where are we going to build a house big enough for God? You know, when Herod rebuilt a temple in Jerusalem, he began to build it in 19 B.C., and it was completed in about 64 A.D. It took over 80 years to build the temple. It was made out of marble and gold, and everyone who saw it marveled at how large it was and how beautiful it was. Josephus tells us it was 1,000 feet long and 180 feet tall. It was longer than three football fields and taller than an 18-story building. Alfred Edersheim estimates it would hold 210,000 people at one time. But you know what? It wasn't big enough to hold God. But there is a house that God dwells in. It's a spiritual house, and you and I are the stones that comprise it. And then the third thing he says about this house is that it hasn't been completed. In verse 5 he says, you are being built. It's still under construction. Why is that? Well, that's because new stones are still being added every day. And even those of us who are already stones in the building are growing and getting chips knocked off of us each day. And then the fourth thing I want you to notice about this house is that God is the builder. Stones don't build themselves. We have a nice stone wall behind me. When it was completed, I didn't congratulate the stones. I congratulated the stone layer. And we are simply stones in the hands of God who is using us to build His house. Jesus didn't say in Matthew 16, 18, you will build my church. He said what? I will build my church. Now what part do we have in it? Well, look at verse 4 again. It says, and coming to Him as to a living stone. We have come to the living stone. And who is the living stone? It's Jesus. 
You see, we are living stones because we have come to the One who is the living stone. And verse 6 and 7 tells us we have believed in Him. That's all we do. God does the rest. In fact, if you go back to that phrase at the beginning of verse 4, it says, and coming to Him, that's actually a present participle. It could be translated, you keep coming to Him. And if you read this verse, it says, as we keep coming to Him, we are being built up. What do we do? We keep coming to Him. We keep making ourselves available to Him. And He builds us up. We come to Him first in salvation. And then we just keep coming back for wisdom, direction, blessing, help, encouragement, healing. And as we come, God builds us up. But you know what's interesting? As we come to the living stone, we find that there are a whole lot of other people going the opposite direction. And Peter tells us in verse 4 there are really two opinions of Jesus. One is that He's worthless because it says you come to the living stone rejected by men. Men said, away with Him. Men hung Him on the cross. Men said, we will not have this man to reign over us. And the majority of people today still hold that same opinion. But there's a second opinion of Jesus. And that's the opinion of God. And it says that at the end of verse 4, and that is He is priceless, but choice and precious in the sight of God. Men reject Him. God has chosen Him. Men call Him worthless. God calls Him precious. That word means valuable or priceless. And those of us who come to Jesus, the living stone, accept God's evaluation of Him. He is the choice stone. He is the precious stone. And to illustrate that, Peter goes on to tell us that Jesus really reflects two kinds of stones in relationship to people. He is a cornerstone and He is a stumbling stone. And every one of Him relates to Him in one of those two ways, as a cornerstone or as a stumbling stone. First of all, He's the cornerstone, verse 6. For this is contained in Scripture, more specifically Isaiah 28, 16. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in Him shall not be disappointed. Now today, we refer to a cornerstone as a stone that bears the name of a building and the date it was built. We've got one out on the canopy. It's totally cosmetic. It was the last stone to be laid in this building. But in the first century, when they talked about a cornerstone, they were talking about the very first stone to be laid. It was the foundation stone on which the other stones were built. And it was put on the corner so that it defined the lines of the walls of the whole structure. In Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter spoke up and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And following that, Jesus said, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now there's been a lot of confusion on that passage. Some people have taken that passage and concluded that Peter is the foundation stone of the church. That Jesus was saying that upon Peter, he would build his church. 
But what's interesting, if you look at that passage and you look at the two words Jesus used, Jesus said, you are Petros, and upon this Petra I will build my church. You are Petros, Peter, stone, and upon this Petra, this bedrock, this foundation stone, I will build my church. Now the reason I bring up that passage is because I think if Jesus were telling Peter that he was going to be the foundation stone of the church, I think Peter would have probably known it. But when we come to Peter's letter here in 1 Peter chapter 2, what does Peter say? Peter says, Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the foundation stone. And Paul confirms that same thing in 1 Corinthians 3.11 where he says, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. God has laid the foundation stone. God has laid the precious cornerstone. And it's Jesus. And Peter goes on to say in verse 7, This precious value then is for you who believe. If you believe, if you come to Jesus and let God build your life upon Him, Peter says, you will receive the priceless value of Jesus Christ. He's the cornerstone. But He's also the stumbling stone. Look again at verse 7. He says, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very corner stone. Now when Solomon built the original temple, 1 Kings 6-7 tells us it was prefabricated. The stones were cut out in a quarry and they were shaped ahead of time and no noise of hammers or tools was heard on the temple site. And so the stones were cut out ahead of time. They were fashioned ahead of time. They were shipped to the construction site. And then they were sort of put together like a jigsaw puzzle. Now the story is told that a stone arrived early at the site and the builders looked at it and it was an odd shape and they didn't know how it fit. And so they set it aside. And they kind of pushed it off to the side and the weeds grew around it and they forgot it was even there. And then as they went on and began to try to assemble the building, they realized something was missing, and so they sent back to the quarry for the cornerstone, and they were told it's already been sent. And they had to go into the weeds and pull out that cornerstone and put it in its place so that they could build the temple. And that's what this passage is talking about from Psalm 118.22. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. Now, whether or not that happened in Solomon's temple, it happened in the spiritual temple. Because Jesus came to be the cornerstone of Israel, and Israel rejected Him, and He has become the cornerstone of a whole new building, which is the church. And then He goes on to say in verse 8, and it is a, stum a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For those who come to Jesus, He builds our life upon the cornerstone. But for those who reject Him, He becomes to us a rock of offense that we stumble over. Now this applies really to everyone, but it specifically and particularly applies to the Jews. Because Peter had heard this verse used before. And for a moment, I'd just like you to turn back to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21 
And beginning in verse 33, Jesus tells a parable to the chief priests and the elders of Israel. He says there was a landowner who planted a vineyard, and then he rented it out, and he went on a journey. And at harvest time, he sent his slaves to receive his portion of the produce. And they beat one, and they killed another, and they stoned a third. And so he decided he would send a larger group, and they did the same thing. So finally he decided he would send his son, and he said to himself, they will respect my son. But they took the son and they killed him. And so Jesus asked the question in verse 40, when the owner comes, what will he do? And in verse 41 they said, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. And so Jesus says in verse 42, did you never read Psalm 118.22? The stone which the builders rejected, this has become the chief corner stone. And then He makes the application in verse 43, therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit of it. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you, Israel, because you're the ones who rejected the prophets. You're the ones who have killed the Son. And it will be given to a nation that will produce the fruit of it. And who is that? That's the church. And then Jesus adds this in verse 44, And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. The same stone that you have rejected as your foundation is going to crush you in judgment. And that's the same thing we find Peter alluding to in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 8. He says, it is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now the Jews were especially prone to stumble over Jesus. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block. And why do they stumble over Him? Is it an accident? No. Look again at verse 8. It says, For they stumble because they are disobedient to the Word. They stumble because they have chosen to be disobedient. And then notice what he adds at the end of verse 8. And to this doom they were also appointed. Who's that? He's speaking generally about Israel. They were determined, or they were, uh, let me get the word right, they were appointed to this doom. God planned that because Israel's rejection opened the door for us, the Gentiles. But we can also make that application in a more general way. If you reject Jesus as your cornerstone, you will stumble over Him as your stone of judgment. So if you're a believer here this morning, I want you to look in the mirror and realize that you are a living stone in God's house. You are the place God dwells. And then the second thing I want you to see is that you are priests that God accepts. Verse 5 again. It says, for a holy priesthood. Now, in Israel, the priesthood was limited to a select number of people from a select tribe. And the outstanding characteristic of a priest was that he was the only one who had direct access to God, and he was the only one who could offer sacrifices to God. And if you weren't a priest, 
then the only way you could get access to God was by coming through someone who was a priest. You couldn't just prance into the holy place. In fact, Uzziah tried to do that in 2 Chronicles 26, and he was struck with leprosy. If you weren't a priest, you had to stay out of the holy place. In fact, on the Day of Atonement, the only person who had a right to go into God's presence in the holy of holy places was the high priest. But you know what happened at the cross? Everything changed. Remember when Jesus was dying on the cross, the veil in the temple was torn from the top to the bottom. And God was saying, the Lamb of God has been sacrificed and everyone now has access into the holy of holy places. God was saying, you are welcome here because I have received a sacrifice that I'm satisfied with. And along with that perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, God also established a new priesthood. And guess who the priests are today? It's you and me. If you, now get this, if you are a believer here today, you are a priest. You don't have to go to any man anywhere to get access to God. You have direct access to God through Jesus Christ. You say, you mean I'm a priest? I don't even have a robe. I, I, I'm a priest? What is my responsibility as a priest? Well, he tells us in verse 5. We are a holy priesthood, and our responsibility is to offer up spiritual sacrifices. We are to offer up sacrifices. That's what priests do. But we're no longer to offer up blood sacrifices. That ceased at the cross. We are to offer spiritual sacrifices. Now let's think about that. You are a priest... And you are to be offering up spiritual sacrifices to God. What are they? Well, let me suggest a few. Psalm 51.17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. God wants you to offer up the sacrifice of a broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart. When's the last time you came to God in prayer and said, God, break me before you? You see, that's the sacrifice we're to offer, a sacrifice of brokenness before God. Romans 12.1 says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. The spiritual sacrifice you are to offer God is your body. When's the last time you came to the Lord and said, Lord, I want to give you myself. I want to lay myself on your altar to die to me so that I might live to you. See, that's a spiritual sacrifice. In Philippians chapter 4 and, eight, and verse 18, Paul had received a monetary gift from the church at Philippi. This is what he said, Having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice well-pleasing to God. A spiritual sacrifice to God is when you give the gift of money as a sacrifice to Him. Listen to Hebrews chapter 
13 and verse 15. Through Him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. God wants you to give as a sacrifice your lips so that your lips might give praise to God. That's a spiritual sacrifice. And then the next verse in Hebrews 13, 16 says, And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. God wants you to give the sacrifice of deeds of kindness to Him. Now let me ask you something. How are you doing in your role as a priest? Are you offering to God spiritual sacrifices like a broken spirit, a surrendered body, Gifts of money, lips of praise, deeds of kindness. That's what He wants from us. That's our responsibility. You know, the exciting thing about being a priest for God today is what it says in verse 5. It says we are to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. You know, the priests in the Old Testament never quite knew whether their sacrifices were acceptable to God. Peter tells us here that our sacrifices are accepted. And why is that? Because we offer those sacrifices, notice, through Jesus Christ. God has already accepted the sacrifice that Jesus made for our sins, and so we know that through Him, God will accept our sacrifices of worship. If you're a believer here this morning, I want you to look in the mirror because you are one of the priests God accepts. And then thirdly, we are the people God calls His own. Notice verse 9. For you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Now Peter tells us four things about ourselves in this verse. Number one, we are a chosen race. Now the chosen race in the Old Testament was the Jewish race. But God has set them aside and God has chosen a whole new race of people. But they're not distinguished by their place of birth. They are not distinguished by the color of their skin. In fact, in Revelation 5.9, we're told about the church that it's going to come from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The church is made up of every kind of skin and it speaks every language. The common denominator is that we are built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And so if you are here as a believer this morning, you are part of that chosen race. And then he says, we are a royal priesthood. Now mark that, because I'm not going to be able to elaborate on all that this means. But a royal priest means somebody who is a king and a priest. And that's you. Now I looked in the Old Testament, I couldn't find anybody who was a, both a king and a priest. Except one person. And that's a guy with a long name. His name is Melchizedek. And Hebrews chapter 7 says that Jesus was not a priest after the order of Levi. He was a priest after the order of who? Melchizedek. Which tells us that Jesus was both king and priest. 
This passage tells us that because we are in Christ, we are not only priests, we are kings. We not only have access to God, we will reign with Him. Speaking of us in Revelation 5.10, it says, Jesus has made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. That's you. And then thirdly, he says, we are a holy nation. Now that's a phrase used of Israel in Exodus 19.6, but it was conditional in relation to Israel. It said that Israel would be a holy nation if they kept God's covenant. But guess what? They failed. Because no one can keep the law. But what's exciting here is he doesn't say you will be a holy nation if. He says you are a holy nation. Now why is that? Well, that's because we have a new covenant. And the new covenant is not conditional. It's unconditional. It's based on Jesus Christ. And God has taken His righteousness and put it into our account. And so we are today a holy nation. See, there's only one true nation under God. And that is the church with our citizenship in heaven. And then fourthly, he says, you are a people for God's own possession. I think the King James says you're a peculiar people. If you like that translation and it applies, you can use it. It literally says... You are a people for God's own possession. Now there are really two criteria that determine the value of something. How much someone is willing to pay and who owns it. I noticed an auction recently where they auctioned a a pair of sweaty tennis shoes. And they sold for several thousand dollars because they had been worn by and owned by Michael Jordan. You see, value is dictated by who owns it and how much somebody is willing to pay. Well, given that criteria, how valuable are you? Well, who owns you? God. And how much was He willing to pay? His only Son. And as a little boy once said, Jesus didn't die for no junk. We are God's very own possession. Now that's exciting stuff. I hope you're underlining this because this is exciting stuff. This is an exciting mirror to look into and realize who God has made you to be. Now why did God make us a chosen race and a royal priesthood and a holy nation and a people for His very own possession? Well, he tells us in verse 9, he did so in order that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. God has done this for us so that we can be a walking, talking advertisement of God and how worthy he is. In fact, the word excellencies is better translated fame. Peter says we're to proclaim the fame of him. Now that's exciting because the fact that we are royal and holy and the special possessions of God doesn't make us stick out our chest and strut. It makes us brag about God. And why do we do that? Because apart from Him, He tells us we would still be in the darkness. Look at the end of verse 9. 
He has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You are in the darkness, spiritually, mentally, morally, when God called you into the light. You were still groping around in the darkness. You were still stumbling over Jesus when He brought you into the light. And what I love here is He describes it as His marvelous light. You know why it's marvelous light? Light alone doesn't, isn't marvelous. If God had just shined the light on us and showed us how bad off we were, that would be bad. It's marvelous light because everything we see is wonderful. And the most amazing thing is what God has done, what God has made out of you and me. And then he goes on to tell us another reason. You would not be a people, verse 10. You once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Do you realize that if the Old Testament economy were still in place, you and I would be the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Philistines and the Amalekites. We would be on the losing team. We would be enemies of God. But He has taken us and He has made us His people. And then the third thing He says is that we would not have received mercy. The end of verse 10. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I hope you haven't gotten so far along in your Christian life that you can't remember back when you had not received mercy. You know, these phrases in verse 10 come from a passage in Hosea 2.23. And there it says, I will also have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy, and I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people, and they will say, thou art my God. And the illustration of that passage is Hosea, who married a wife, and then she went off into adultery with other men. And God told Hosea to go out and find his wife and bring her back and love her and make that one who had declared, I'm not your wife anymore, to be your wife again. And that picture is the picture of God and how He is related to us. We were once in a position of spiritual harlotry. Apart from God, we were not His people. But God, by His mercy, came out and He found us. And He brought us back. And He gave us mercy. And He made us His people so that we can say, You are my God. And so if you're a believer here this morning, I want you to look in the mirror. I want you to look in the mirror of mercy and realize that you are the people God calls His own. Dr. Charles Cooley, the dean of American sociology, said this, your self-esteem is determined to a large degree by what you think the most important person in your life thinks about you. Did you get that? Your self-esteem is determined to a large degree by what you think the most important person in your life thinks about you. Now, if that's true, then I've got the answer for you. Let Jesus Christ be the most important person in your life. Because here's what He says about you. You are the place God dwells. You are the priest God accepts. And you are the people God calls His own. 
Maybe you're here today. And when we go back to verse 4, you have to say that you have never come to Jesus Christ and place your faith in Him. And so as we close this service, we're going to stand and sing together, and I'm going to give you that opportunity to come today. We're going to sing number 596. We're only going to sing the first verse, so you come as we begin. Number 596, and stand as we sing.